This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. The story of slavery in America shifts depending on who's telling it, depending on which classroom, public square, or historical site you are visiting. Poet and journalist Clint Smith knew this growing up in New Orleans, but he didn't know know it until he took the journey that became his new best-selling book, How the Word is Passed. From a prison built on a former plantation in Louisiana to the community of free blacks forced from their homes to make way for Central Park in New York City, Smith set out to learn all of the things he wished someone had taught him about slavery in America. Clint Smith joins me now. Thank you for your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What were you not taught? What was this gap in your education? There was so much I wasn't taught. Um, part of it, the part of this, what this book began as um, was watching the Confederate statues come down in my hometown, New Orleans, watching statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee, watching them taken down in May of 2017 and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to the grocery store. I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy, that my parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And and the thing is that when I was growing up, I didn't I didn't know any of that. They were names and they were statues and they were symbols that did not uh, that I hadn't that had never been taught to me um, in ways that were reflective of who these people actually were or what they actually stood for. And it wasn't until my adulthood that I gained a, a more profound and deeper sense of who these people were, and, and specifically in the context of the Confederacy, that it was a treasonous army that seceded from the Union and fought a war predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery. And that they said it directly. They said it for themselves. You can look at the declarations of Confederate secession and see a state like Mississippi that says, uh, quote, our, our position is thoroughly aligned with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. So they were not opaque about why they were seceding from the Union and about to begin the Civil War. But I was never taught any of that growing up. And what I, difference would it have made, felt, do you think, if, if you had been taught that? How would that have changed things for you? I think it just would have provided me with a lot of a lot of clarity. Mm. I think it would have given me a sense. Uh, so much of my childhood was animated by a sense of paralysis. Like I was being inundated with these messages about um, what all the things that were wrong with Black people or all the things that the Black community needed to change and do right. And never having been given the history or the language or the toolkit with which to understand that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not simply because of the people in those communities, but because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And I think it would have given me language and history and information that would have helped me more effectively um, and accurately contextualize the city I was growing up in. You write during one section of the book, you write, I thought of my primary and secondary education. I remembered feeling crippling guilt as I silently wondered why every enslaved person couldn't simply escape like Douglas or Tubman and Jacobs had. Uh, what, what was that crippling guilt? Like, why, Expand on that for me, the, this, um, this, this confusion and frustration you experienced. Yeah, I think like many people, I was only taught to the extent that I was taught about slavery. I was only really taught about Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and, and you know, if you're lucky, Harriet Jacobs or Alauda Equiano, these people who become largely famous with the exception of Tubman, famous because of their autobiographies and um, their, their stories of escaping from slavery. And, and there's these, there these sort of remarkable hero narratives. And part of what you realize, you know, as you get older um, and as you study the historiography of slavery more deeply, is that, you know, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman are, are not reflective of the vast majority of enslaved people's experiences. I mean, these are exceptional people, not just exceptional enslaved people, like exceptional individuals. The universe does not make a lot of people like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman. And so when we study these folks and only study these folks, it can it is important, most certainly, because they are remarkable stories that deserve to be uh, uplifted. 
but it can also give us a distorted sense of what slavery was like for so many people. And, and if you were like me, if you're only getting the narratives of people who ran away, then, you know, as a young person, I was like, well, why didn't, why didn't everybody run away? And you don't fully realize and aren't given the full context about how the sort of psychological terror and the physical terror that uh, shaped the lives of millions of enslaved people across generations that made it difficult for them to even imagine that possibility. And so I think part of what I'm saying there is that we need to study both these incredible stories of Douglas and Tubman and the like, but also study the narratives like in the Federal Writers Project um, of, of ordinary enslaved people um, who were trying to make a life for themselves and find community and love and meaning and purpose in the midst of, of just unfathomable circumstances. So you chose half a dozen or so uh, locations to visit and focus on in the book. What what guided your choices? Part of what I wanted to do was find places that represented the sort of patchwork of experiences um, and the patchwork of memory um, that I think is reflective of the, the sort of inconsistency with which slavery is taught across the country. So you have a place like Angola Prison, um, which is the largest maximum security prison in the country, 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan, a place where 75% of the people held there are Black men, 70% of them are serving life sentences, and it is built on top of a former plantation. And it is a place that does little to nothing up to this point of, of interrogating their relationship to that history, even though they still have Black men who are working in fields for virtually no pay of what was once a plantation on that land. Mm. Uh, and so that's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end, you have a place um, just a, a, an hour or so away, uh, like the Whitney Plantation, which is a plantation that is uh, singularly dedicated. Um, one of the only plantations in the country that is singularly dedicated to telling the story of slavery through the lives and perspectives of enslaved people. And it's surrounded by a sort of constellation of plantations where people continue to hold weddings and, and debutante balls and these the ceremonies that uh, represent, you know, some of the most joyous moments of somebody's life on a place that is an intergenerational site of torture. And so what the Whitney does is says that we can only understand a plantation as an intergenerational site of torture and exploitation, while at the same time lifting up the humanity of the people who suffered at the hands of this horrific system. And so I try to go to a place like the Whitney, a place like Angola, and sort of everywhere in between to mm -hmm. capture the, the varied ways that these stories are told. Share an encounter or a conversation you had at the Whitney Plantation. Help us understand this. It's in Louisiana. Help us understand mm -hmm. what um, like what's different about that? And in a moment, we'll talk about Jefferson's Monticello, maybe the most famous plantation in the world, which you also visit, um, mm -hmm. which probably more people are familiar with. And anyone who's been to your sort of traditional plantation visit in the South, you know, there's the, you know, the big trees and the expansive lawn and the um, the beautiful house. And uh, and the, often there are the quarters for the enslaved people that you might see or the kitchen in the basement. Right. Like what what's mm -hmm. different about what you see at the Whitney Plantation? Yeah, so the Whitney uh, has a variety of exhibits that sort of document um, the the pain and and the terror um, of, mm -hmm. of what enslavement was. So, for example, one of the places, uh, the exhibits they have is called the Field of Angels. Um, and one of the things that the uh, that the Whitney does specifically is is make us think about slavery through the perspective not of just enslaved people, but specifically through women and children, uh, because I think oftentimes our conception of slavery and our public consciousness is uh, animated by, in, with a sort of masculine sensibility of like big, you know, people who are uh, men working in the fields or men being beaten. But the, but the way that it impacted women and children is specifically insidious. And so the Whitney is lifting those stories up and they have one place called the Field of Angels where uh, they document the thousands and thousands of enslaved children um, who died in infancy mm -hmm. and who died when they were young under the age of five um, on, on plaques that surround the statue of an angel holding the body of uh, a, a child who's passed away. And as I was writing this book, I'd become a father to a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, and, and it viscerally impacted me in a way that I think I was unprepared for. Um, and I, I thought a lot about the idea of child separation. And I thought a lot about what it would mean if I was in my home and I woke up one day and my children were gone and I had no idea where they had been taken. And I had no idea if I would ever see them again. And recognizing that that was the, that was the omnipresent threat 
that loomed over millions of enslaved people over the course of generations um, in ways that are just almost unfathomable to consider. And I think the Whitney really forces you to sit with that reality uh, and to consider what it might mean if it happened to you. Do very many people go to visit the Whitney Plantation? That sounds like a pretty heavy visit. Yeah, it's, I think before the pandemic, they had 150,000 visitors a year. I mean, it was growing um, and and has continued to grow. I think it's been around for several years now and has continued to grow. Uh, it's it's about an hour outside of New Orleans. So uh, it's not, it's a little bit off the beaten trail and you have to be really intentional about going there. It's not the kind of thing where, you know, you pass through on a, on a trip to Mardi Gras. Um, right. But uh, and it, but it must think, be a self-selected group. Like people know what they're getting when they go to the Whitney Plantation. Yeah, no one, no one really goes to the Whitney Plantation thinking that they're going to hear stories about the the big the infrastructure of the big house or what sort of wood it was made from or the mm-hmm. fine china that the family dined on. You know that you are going to a place that is specifically, uh, as I say in the book, it is a a hammer that is attempting to unbend uh, four hundred years of crooked nails mm-hmm. um, and that is trying to tell a story. Um, that, you know, the, the thing about the Whitney is that it is a remarkable place because the, it is the only plantation museum in Louisiana and one of the only plantation museums in the country that tell the story of slavery through the perspective of enslaved people. But it shouldn't be remarkable. Like that is what every plantation should be doing because that is what plantations were. They were places where uh, enslaved people were held and places that enslaved people built and places that enslaved people made possible. And so to not tell that story uh, should be the exception um, rather than, unfortunately, the rule. Speaking with Clint Smith, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic, we're talking about his new book, which was recently the number one New York Times bestseller for nonfiction. It's called How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. So at Jefferson's Monticello, uh, in recent years, the the curators and folks who run that have actually begun to inject some of this um, enslaved person's perspective into their storytelling, into their tours. Uh, you take some of those very specialized tours that that, in, that use that perspective. But I was really struck by a conversation you had with one of the curators at Monticello who told you they have to be kind of gentle <laughs> about what they're doing. That's the word mm-hmm. she used, gentle when doing this with white visitors. Can you expand on what she was talking about there? Yeah, I think part of what Monticello is so part of what's so interesting about Monticello is that it has really evolved, as you sort of alluded to, um, in how it tells the story of what Monticello was and who Jefferson was, that Jefferson was a person who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world, and also is someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children, Mm -hmm. that he wrote in one document that black people are uh, or that he wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. And so what Monticello is trying to do is tell a more honest story of who Jefferson was and, and grapple with the complicated uh, and, and contradictory legacy of, of who he was and what he stood for. And, and so part of what the public historians and tour guides in Monticello are doing is finding this balance between extending a certain level of grace and generosity and empathy to people who have never been, who haven't had this story shared with them um, and who don't know about Jefferson's history of slavery, don't know about Jefferson's relationship to slavery, while at the same time also um, taking seriously that there should be a a level of accountability uh, and that you shouldn't, just because people aren't familiar with this information doesn't mean that they, uh, that you shouldn't be fully Uh, transparent and honest with them. And so it's this balance between accountability and generosity that I think they do really well. Clint Smith, expanding on that idea of accountability, well, and just before we leave that idea, so so one of the things that, that the Monticello folks do is they kind of warn people like, hey, this you may hear some things that are going to be difficult for you to hear that you didn't know before. You might have some questions. That's OK. Ask your questions. It's like a trigger warning almost for people who visit Monticello. Um, uh, and so, so but uh, on the on the accountability piece, you um, you went to this to this prison, Angola prison in Louisiana, which you mentioned earlier, is on the site of a, a plantation. There's a tour guide. I was surprised to know that you could actually tour a maximum security prison. Uh, mm-hmm. But but the tour, um, I got the sense from from the way you wrote about it, that the tour didn't 
really delve into the history as much as you had hoped that it would. Uh, What did you feel like it left out? I feel like it left out uh, almost everything. I mean, it, it, it is for me, you know, as I said, Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. The vast majority of people held there are black men serving life sentences who work in fields of what was once a plantation. Mm-hmm. And if we went to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would would rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It will be abhorrent. It will be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the U.S., we have this prison that sits on a former plantation that disproportionately incarcerates Black men who work in the fields for virtually no pay while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so for that place not to interrogate the way that what is actually continuing to happen on that land is informed by and is is unsettlingly parallel to the history that actually took place on that land is is I think a, a huge um, uh, it's a huge omission um, and and what does it mean that that place not only is omitting that information and not really grappling with it um, but also that that place has a gift shop uh, that that place has a gift shop where there's uh, shot glasses and coffee mugs and um, Hmm. And, you know, on those coffee mugs, it says Angola, a gated community. Hmm. Um, You you pressed the tour guide a little bit uh, and, you know, saying, you know, what about the the, can you talk a little bit about the history of slavery, the the plantation history of this um, of this prison? And his response was basically a shrug. And he said, well, yeah, that happened. Uh, Effectively, it was bad. But it's our history. I can't change that. And that answer yeah. really frustrated you. Why? Because that's an, that's an answer we hear kind of a lot when we talk about this. It's like, well, yeah, but OK, but, you know, it was bad, but but we moved on. And what am I going to do about that? Yeah, it's I think that that's something, as you kind of said, we hear we hear all the time. Um, and, and when he's like, you know, there are some bad things that happen here, but I, but I can't change that it sort of echoed the things that I think we hear across this country, like, you know, slavery was bad, but it has nothing to do with what's happening now. Uh, You know, why don't people just get over it? And part of what I want this book to do is like to remind readers of our, our sort of, not only our physical proximity to this history in terms of how it's etched into the landscape of this country, but also our temporal proximity to this history. Uh, that it wasn't that long ago. I think all the time about the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016 alongside the Obama family. She was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the granddaughter or the great granddaughter. She was the daughter of someone born into slavery. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. So I think about my four-year-old son sitting on my grandfather's lap, and I am reminded and imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I think about how this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago, wasn't in fact that long ago at all. And so the idea that that slavery would have nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is is profoundly morally and intellectually disingenuous. Juneteenth was just designated a federal holiday, National Juneteenth Independence Day. You visited Galveston, Texas, where Juneteenth, where the events that transpired there inspired Juneteenth, this Independence Day celebration. Um, what do you think of that designation? And does that do something, do you think, to get us a little closer to to the truth of, of you know, the history of slavery in America? I think it matters. I, I think it's important. I know that, you know, some people express frustration that, you know, Juneteenth is a holiday, but, you know, that's not material change or that's not, uh, you know, the, the things that are needed. Um, we don't need symbolism. We need something more. And And what I'll say is that is a sort of both and there's a both and in this to it that uh, Juneteenth having a holiday that marks the end of slavery that marks the end of one of the most egregious things that this country has ever done is really really important and and I think it's important to honor the, the work that black activists have done especially black activists in Texas have done over the course of decades in order to make this moment possible at the same time it is clearly not in and of itself enough but but I do think symbols matter because symbols 
and holidays and memorials and monuments and names, they're not just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, which isn't to say that taking down a statue of Robert E. Lee or making Juneteenth a federal holiday is going to erase the racial wealth gap. But it is to say that these things are all part of an ecosystem of ideas and an ecosystem of uh, information and stories that help us more effectively understand what has been done to certain communities and what needs to be done for those communities in order to make amends for the harm that has been done in the past. If, if, if you've come to a place in all of this where, where you feel like accountability and transparency is, is crucial, I'm curious to know where you fall on the issue of memorials, taking down Confederate monuments versus what, putting up a, a monument next to it or on the opposite street, telling the other perspective, an enslaved individual's perspective. How do we, how do we tell our history in a more authentic way? I think you have to be honest about what happened here. I mean, I think about Germany, they have these things in Berlin called stumbling stones. Um, and you, there's these small bricks that are sort of elevated off the ground. Um, and what they, they on, etched on them, written on them are the names uh, of people who were taken um, during the Holocaust, people who were taken from these homes when they were born and also the date they were taken from their homes and, and what happened to them. And so you can't go anywhere in Berlin without regularly encountering uh, a reminder of what was done in this country's name, what was done in your name as a citizen of Germany. And I think about how powerful it might be if in the United States we had these reminders everywhere we went of where slave auctions were held, of where enslaved people were sold, of where uh, Native American genocide took place, of where uh, Japanese American internment took place, of, of, of these things in our history that we try to push to the side or, or don't fully grapple with. And to think about what it might mean if we all had uh, these regular reminders of the things that... Um, that are, are shameful parts of our history, but, but that we have the opportunity to learn from that shame and make a different set of decisions about how we move forward. So having those reminders everywhere, in what way do you think that actually leads to, to healing or um, you know, overcoming the, the divisions that so often arise on these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what happens is you develop a, a more public consciousness, right? Like instead, part of what we have now is that you have so many people who have different sets of information about what uh, our history is and who are working with different sort of epistemological realities and different sets of knowledge. And, and I think that part of the issue um, is, is that right now we don't have that. We don't have a collective understanding. We don't have a collective knowledge in the same way that a place like Germany uh, more fully does. And that's not to say Germany is perfect. It obviously struggles with its own uh, anti-Semitism that arises, th uh, arises there. But it is to say that if you can develop a collective understanding as a country about what this country's history is, then you are able to create public policy and make decisions that more effectively, um, that more effectively uh, attempt to make amends again for um, for the things that have been done. And then you can look around and understand the reason that this country looks the way that it does is not by accident, but because of a specific set of state-sanctioned state decisions that have been made over the course, of, um, over the course of, of many centuries. Clint Smith, we have about a minute left. Can you tell us briefly about an encounter that truly surprised you in your travels for this book? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think about Donna and Grace, who I met at Monticello, and uh, we were on a slavery at Monticello tour together, and they were clearly unsettled by what they heard. And I went up to them after uh, these two white, older white women, and I said, could you tell me a little, about, about, a little bit about how you're feeling? And they said of the guide, David Thorson, they said, man, he really took the shine off Jefferson because they had no idea that Jefferson owned slaves. They had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And so they came to this site as a sort of pilgrimage to the, one of the founding fathers of our country and had no idea that this person uh, was someone who enslaved human beings. And I think it was a reminder for me that not everybody is operating with the same, again, not the same sets of knowledge and that there are millions of people across this country who don't understand slavery in any way that is commensurate with the actual impact that it had on this country. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic. His new best-selling book is How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive.
This is Top of Mind. Thanks for taking time to tune in today. I'm Julie Rose. Veterinarians are at much higher risk for suicide compared to the general American public. We've talked a lot on the air about how vets, veterans of war, are at high risk for suicide. Well, so are doctors. And evidence also has become clear that doctors for animals, veterinarians, experience a similar high risk. Carrie Journey is president of a support group for veterinarians like herself. It's called Not One More Vet. And they're currently part of an online campaign called Hashtag Ears to Vets to promote mental health among veterinarians. Journey is a practicing vet. She specializes in animal neurosurgery, and she's on the line. Dr. Journey, thanks for taking time today. Well, thanks so much for having me. What are some of the unusual stresses veterinarians face uh, when it comes to mental health? I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things. I think the people who go into any field of medicine just want to help, right? We want to we want to help our patients and we care a great deal about that. And then we're put in these environments that sometimes prevent us from doing the thing we've wanted to do our whole lives and trained to do our whole lives. Um, veterinary medicine is an incredibly fast paced uh, profession. There are, there are struggles like, you know, unfortunately not all pet owners can afford to take care of their, their pets medical care. And that puts the veterinarian in a very tricky space. Um, so I, I think it can set up a situation where a, a person who has, you know, really dedicated their lives to helping and, and doing good in the world feels, feels a little hopeless. And it's, it's a really tough place to be in. You're put in a tricky spot because, well, because I guess well, unlike a human doctor, someone comes in, the doctor will never be asked to, well, we can't afford it, so go ahead and just euthanize this human. Absolutely. But, yeah. but that is or, what happens with veterinarians. things that are, are perhaps not, you know, what we think is the best possible thing for the pet because it's just the reality of the, the owner's finances. You know, unlike human beings, only 5% of American pets currently have pet insurance. And, mm -hmm. and you know, certainly it's not the only way to afford your pet's medical care, but it is, a, it is a, you know, the avenue that we use most often in, in human medicine. And veterinarians are faced with the same price structures. You know, we pay the same amount for the bottle of antibiotics on the shelf that our human counterparts do. And I think we all know that healthcare in the United States is incredibly expensive. So it's just, it's an interesting set of problems um, to face, you know, as a, as a person who, you know, when I went to vet school, I, I really didn't think that that's what I was going to be stressing out about. You know, I, I definitely expected, you know, big surgeries and things to to be stressful and those things can be stressful but it's actually more the logistical and people part of the job that i think causes the most stress hmm. people in terms of dealing with uh, pet owners managing yeah, their expectations yeah i mean i think you know I, I as you mentioned like i work in a in a field that's pretty dramatic when you come see someone like me i'm seeing a lot of people on their worst day their, their pet is paralyzed or having seizures and I think I've seen about every variety of stressed out person that exists. You know, I, I, I see a lot of people's stress reactions and sometimes those people are, are kind and sometimes they can, they can actually lash out at, you know, they're lashing out at the situation, but they're doing that by lashing out at the person in front of them. And especially in the last year when the entire world has just been put under tremendous strain, it's, it's been particularly apparent. Hmm. Like how? Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of veterinarians reporting clients being, um, unfortunately, very cruel, yelling, screaming. Um, sometimes there have been threats of violence. I've personally had my life threatened three different times at work. Um, it's, it's really amazing um, and unfortunate, the things that, that can happen when people are, you know, we hit the intersection of people who love their pets very much. I think the love of a pet, the love of the animal is one of the most pure forms of love that exists. And then, you know, a stressful situation where they feel that that, that pet is, is in danger. And unfortunately, it, it causes a lot of conflict. Where do you turn in, in those super yeah, stressed I mean, out moments? I, I think that's a big, big reason that our organization has been so, so popular in, the, in our field is um, there aren't a lot of people who understand kind of, you know, how, how your day was hard uh, when you work in the profession. And so a big thing my organization does is we have support groups that currently support over 30,000 veterinary professionals across the world. Um, and so I often go to those support groups to say like, look, this is why my day is hard. My, my case didn't go well. My client was really angry with me today. I had to euthanize a dog that it was a good decision, but it was still a really hard euthanasia. Like those are a lot of conversations that somebody who works in the field understands and can have a deeper level of conversation on versus if I went to say my husband who I love very much, but he works in software. 
he doesn't understand exactly what happens in those situations. So the support groups are a great mechanism um, for getting support. Is this something, a problem that has taken the veterinarian industry by surprise? You know, it's it's not new. I think what's new is we're talking about it more. We actually have data that spans back to the 1960s showing that veterinarians have higher rates of things like depression and even suicidal ideation. Um, but I, I think, you know, with the rise of social media, with the rise of people just being more willing to talk about mental health struggles, um, we've really started to discuss it as an industry. And, and I think that's great because I think this is the sort of thing that doesn't get better in the dark. It's something we have to talk about. Is there something that you could have been told or taught in your training that might have better prepared you for this aspect of the job? You know, that's something we work a lot on. We actually have a um, committee within our organization, the Student Support Committee, that specifically works on how do we, A, support vet students, and B, teach them the skills that they need to be successful in the beginning of their career. Um, I certainly kind of, you know, learned in the school of hard knocks, a lot of the self-care and self-regulatory strategies that help keep me, um, you know, to be on the, the path of being a healthy and happy doctor. Um, but gosh, I would have loved to have learned those a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, so yeah, absolutely. We, what, we have educational programs that are aimed just at just that. What is something that you wish you had been taught that would have helped you early on? You know, I, I think a lot of people who go into medicine are very analytical and very, um, very quick to to look at risk and problems. Right. It's part of the skill set that helps you be a doctor, but it also can drive a rather negative narrative in your head. Um, and you can be a little hard on yourself. And so, for instance, working on things like gratitude exercises, um, working on positive thinking exercises has really helped me not be so negative and hard on myself. Self-compassion exercises. Just just a, a small example of something that, you know, it's a really simple thing to do, but it really helps me, um, you know, stay happy uh, in, in a job that can be really hard. Do veterinarians in training, though, take that seriously? I mean, they're fresh, I, fresh faced and optimistic and they're like, oh, come it's on. True. It's true. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I, I, for instance, I had some communications training um, in vet school. I, I went to vet school a million years ago. I think we stu studied dinosaurs. I'm so old. But, you know, at least at that point, we had communications training. And I don't think I took it as seriously as I probably should have. Um, so some of it, I think you you won't use it. You won't really pay attention to it until you use it. But even just hearing about it, just knowing that those things are out there is a huge leg up. It's a huge mm -hmm. leg up. And so maybe they don't take it seriously when we're teaching it, but maybe they pull those those notes out five years later when they need them. And it gives them, it gives them a place to start. If you, though, Dr. Journey, um, had had spoken to spoken to future you when you were a student um, and future you told you about the stresses and the abuse from, you know, clients and all of the things that make this a very, very difficult job. Do you think you would have made the same choices? Um, would I have still become a veterinarian? I think so. I think people that come to my profession are called to the profession, right? This is this is not just a job, it's a calling. And so I don't think you're ever going to talk anyone out of, of becoming a veterinarian or becoming a veterinary technician. I think it's something that you are driven to do. What I want to help people do is do it safely, mm -hmm. you know, to, to find that joy and that meaning in their career without without some of the hardship. Would you talk just a little more about the financial side of the veterinary uh, industry? Sure. Because, you know, for a job that's got so much um, emotional downside, <laughs> people go into this for the love of animals. Uh, I, I guess you we, you want to assume that this is going to pay as much as a doctor would. I mean, you have that oh, kind of training. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, um, my industry is in a little bit of, a, I would say, a financial crisis hmm. um, because everyone in the field is drawn to helping animals. Right. That's why we're here. Um, and we understand that the baseline cost of healthcare is so expensive. We have financially starved our industry um, and to the point where wages um, are really catastrophically low. Wait, when you say um, we have financially starved our industry, you place the blame on veterinarians for not I, I think that, we, you know, I think this is a shared blame. I think, okay. unfortunately, you know, we have, I, I see a lot of self-sacrificing in veterinarians. I see a lot of people, for instance, um, skip their lunch breaks, stay late, do cases for free, pay for other people's dogs care themselves. 
um, because mm -hmm. the owners can't afford it and they just want to help the dog. So I see this behavior a lot in veterinary medicine because we are once again called and driven to help animals above all other things. Um, and so I see so that sets up a bit of an unrealistic prices to keep to keep care as affordable as possible because they want to help as many animals as possible. And so it's a really you know, it's a really unsustainable situation. Um, so unfortunately that's led to really low salaries for, for doctors, especially for our support staff, a significant number of our support staff in veterinary medicine actually live below the poverty line, mm. which is just, you know, for, for people who are degreed licensed professionals, that's just really not acceptable. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately things like student debt really play a big role, especially in our, our veterinarians lives. The average student debt for veterinarians is, is over $160,000. Um, and you consider that starting salaries are in the, you know, sixties and seventies. I mean, a $60,000 salary is not a bad salary, but when you have a, you know, you leave school with something that's greater than most people's mortgage payments, you know, on your back, it, it really is unfortunately a very difficult, um, difficult life that you've set up for yourself. So when, when you have a, a you know, a patient come that needs emergency spinal surgery, um, it's going to take hours. I don't know, maybe days. I'm sure it's a lot of work that's going to go into it. A lot of medicine and resources are going to have to go into that. Um, but the patient, uh, but the patient's owner is maybe not going to be able to pay that whole bill. Yeah. Do you just yeah. do the surgery anyway? Uh, are there ways um, to recover that? You know, cost? we, we, we can't afford, I mean, unfortunately that situation is incredibly common. Um, there's actually been some studies on it. Um, uh, doctor, I know Dr. Barry Kipperman did a study. He pulled a thousand veterinarians and he asked how often does a person's finances impact your ability to practice the medicine you want to practice? Um, 53% of veterinarians said every single day. Um, so that just tells you how common that scenario mm. is in, in our field. Mm. And so unfortunately you, you cannot just, you know, I have to pay my staff. I have to, you know, make sure there's medicine on the shelves. I cannot afford to give away that much care every single day. So unfortunately the reality is a lot of those patients ends, end up with either plan B, which isn't ideal, um, but sometimes works. So we give it a try or unfortunately euthanasia is another, you know, common scenario. If it's, if it's a dire disease for which, you know, there is no other alternative that that is unfortunately where we end up. What can pet owners, uh, animal lovers do to make to make things better for veterinarians? I think there's there's twofold things that people can do. I think first and foremost, you know, it, kindness goes a long way. Um, you know, if you are at your veterinary clinics right now, you know that wait times are very long. It's hard to get appointments. We have been overwhelmed in this pandemic. So if you can be patient and kind with us, that would be amazing. And the other is to please have a realistic financial plan for your pet's medical care. Um, you know, be that via pet insurance, be that via savings account, whatever it needs to be. Um, if you can help us help you by planning ahead, that would be amazing. And we would really, really appreciate it. It lets us help you and that's what you want to. So I think that would just be a, a great way for, to move forward from here. How can someone know if they have a realistic financial plan for their pet care? I I think that's a really great question and it's a really great place to engage your veterinarian. I know when I speak to my friends about getting a dog, you know, I, I tell them, I, I don't actually care what kind of dog you get. I want you to get a dog with insurance. <laughs> um, pet insurance is actually a really practical and great way um, to, to, to afford your pet's medical care. I have insurance for my pets and, um, and, you know, I'm a veterinarian. I could do a lot of that stuff myself, but I recognize that, you know, if you have insurance, it takes a lot of that financial stress out of those, those otherwise hard decisions. Yeah. Um, Although we yeah. do live in a, we do live in a, a society where having insurance for yourself as a person and your family is yeah. not always the easiest decision or the most, or not, maybe not even affordable at all. And of course there's no like Medicaid for dogs, right? So there's it's, it's true, but I will say pet insurance is way more affordable than people <laughs> insurance. So thankfully, yeah. I think it's it's within within reach of for a lot more pet owners than unfortunately, you know, human health insurance, which can be terribly expensive. Doctor Journey, would you finally just tell us what's the what is the hope with this hashtag ears to vets social media campaign? So you know. When we were approached by We Rate Dogs, which is a great social media site that just shares wonderful pictures of dogs, um, they wanted to raise awareness around the struggles that veterinarians were having. So they came up with a hashtag, ears to vets. Um, so pet owners could just tell their veterinarians that they were listening. Um, and it's been a really amazing campaign. You know, I, I love dogs just about as much as anyone in the world. And, and seeing all of the pictures of people's dogs and cats um, tagged with the hashtag, it just, it, 
it lets us know that any negative voices we might hear are a minority. And there are a lot of people out there who, who are happy to partner uh, with their veterinarian to, to, for, the, for the love of the animals. Carrie Journey is a practicing veterinarian specializing in neurosurgery. She's an animal brain surgeon, and she's president of the nonprofit support group for veterinarians called Not One More Vet. Dr. Journey, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. It's good to have you with us. Doulas have become quite common in childbirth. They're trained helpers or companions who support the mother through the birthing process. Doulas are now becoming more common in the other big life passage we all go through, death. So when and why might a person need a death doula? Janie Racco is co-founder of the International End-of-Life Doula Association, which trains doulas and offers a directory for people looking to hire one. Janie Racco, welcome. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Julie. It's great to be here. Would you tell us about a client you worked with? Why did they hire you and what did you do for them? Sure. So I was hired by a woman. We'll call her Laura. Uh, She was 50 years old. She was divorced. She had four kids and she had a terminal diagnosis. Mm. And Laura was very conscious that she was going to die and she wanted to do it on her own terms. And although she had a lot of family around, um, she was taking care of her four kids, but her ex-husband was very involved. She knew that there would most likely be nobody really taking care of her and knowing what her wishes were. So she hired me fairly early on in her diagnosis and we made a plan. We made a plan of where she wanted to die. Um, We talked everything through. You would probably think at first, you know, oh, I want to die at home. That's where I feel most comfortable. But after Laura and I sat down and talked about it, she said, look, there's nobody in my home who's going to really take care of me 24-7. My kids are in and out. They were teenagers and in their early 20s, they had a life. And so she came to the conclusion that she wanted to die in a hospice facility where she would have round-the-clock care. So we talk about all different sorts of things. And um, and do you Laura, do any of that was, care? If I could just interject, is, is any of that care yeah. your job to do? No, no, we don't do, as doulas, we don't do medical care. We okay. just really advocate and help them plan the really the best death that they could imagine for themselves, which is very individual. Everybody's hmm. different. The best death. What is it? What does a good death mean? I oh, mean, it's, it's individual, but <laughs> so, I mean, how have some of your clients defined that? How, how did how yeah. did how did this individual define that? So for her, a good death was consciously thinking about her children and what would happen after she died, making sure that she could have them taken care of both having uh, financially and legally all her affairs in order, making sure her ex-husband knew her wishes and what she hoped to happen for her children. She kind of used me as a gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. She She was estranged from her father who wanted to see her desperately before she died. And so we had to talk through that. So For her, a good death was really thinking all the different pieces through in her life, what mattered to her and what would matter after she was gone and addressing all of those issues. So So was this a one-time consultation that you did with her? No, I worked with her over months because you really have to develop a relationship with somebody and develop that trust. And so that can take a long time. Unfortunately, not everybody has that time. So I've worked with patients within a week of their death, but generally it's best to start early. Mm. Does the job of doula ever involve being the person that's sitting with the dying individual in their final moments? Like just 
Absolutely. You know, absolutely. (laughs) So yes, that is part of our job because we want to give um, respite and a break to the caregivers. Mm -hmm. They have most likely been caring for their loved one who is dying for, it could be years and they are exhausted. And as they're getting closer to death, there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And so the doulas will come in and say, you know, I'm here, I will sit vigil, I will sit next to this person, I've got it, take a break, go get something to eat, go outside, walk around, get some much needed rest, and I will call you back if there's any changes in their physical condition. So yes, that is a big part of what we do. Mm. And so the difference between you and a home health uh, aide or a hospice worker then is you're not administering any medical care. You're simply company and and advice and support, but nothing on the medical front. Yes, that is okay. correct. We okay. are not um, doing anything medical. And we actually complement hospice. I volunteer at a hospice as a doula and they love hospice loves doulas because we can fill in those gaps. So when the nurse is running on to a next patient after an hour, the doula has maybe two hours or three hours to sit and talk to the person who's dying, talk to their family. Whereas um, hospice, they just don't have those large blocks of time. So generally hospices love when the doulas get involved. Um, It sounds like being a good doula requires um, being a nice person and a good listener (laughs) who has some compassion, right? Not being afraid of those stressful moments, not being afraid of death, obviously. But are there specific, is there specific training required to be a doula? Um, Yes and no. So there's lots of training organizations out there now. Um, And I think probably 90% of them are wonderful. But there are many people who just inherently are probably good doulas who have sat with people who are dying who've had no training. So you're right. Being a good listener is top on the list. Just sitting with somebody, listening to them, letting them talk to you. Um, Are they in pain? What do they fear? Just having them unload that is really important. So there's many people out there who are probably, you know, being a doula and don't even know it. But there are lots of training organizations also. Does the doula's job extend after the death? Yes. So um, for me, after the death, I will always check in on the loved one's A couple of days after, many times I'm at the funeral, um, and we do do something called reprocessing grief. So we will go back and talk to them. How are they doing? Um, Generally, the doulas are there at such an intimate moment when someone is dying, and we are with the loved ones at this time. So they often feel very close to us, Mm. and so we will stay in touch for a while afterwards just to check on them. How are they doing? Maybe refer them on to a grief counselor. Um, but we do, we do often stay in touch. What does it cost to hire a doula? Oh, that's all over the board and it depends where you live. So, um, many doulas charge hourly and that could be anywhere from $50 an hour to $150 an hour. Um, some doulas give package deals And what I would advise anybody looking for a doula is do your due diligence, talk to them, interview them, talk to a couple of different doulas, and just see who you feel comfortable with. It's really about trust and comfort. What would be some of the signals that that I might want to hire a doula? Some some of the because a lot of what you've described, uh, you know, a loved one or a family member could do. Um, but there might be certain moments or there certain signals that, oh, I think that a doula in this case would be really helpful. What would I look for? Yeah. So generally a loved one and a family member is too close to this person. So what is special about the doulas is that we are objective. So somebody who is dying, I can't tell you how many times they have told me things that they would never tell their loved ones because either they don't want to upset them. They don't want to get them scared or nervous. Um, They need to unload something. So it's really very different 
to be a loved one caring for someone who's dying as opposed to an objective party like a doula. Um, we always tell people like when you're a doula for your own family, like my, both my parents were on hospice and they died and I was a mess and I knew everything to do, but mm. I was a mess. This was my father and my mother. So I think having a doula, having somebody who's objective, having somebody who could run down a checklist, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Um, I worked with a woman who was dying and she wanted nothing more than to die at home with her, her older kids surrounding her and her beloved 14 year old dog. But she, as we talked about it, she said, you know what, I need to go into a facility because I know my husband will fall apart at home. He won't be able to walk around this house knowing I died here. And she was absolutely right. Hmm. So there are things that doulas will bring up to talk about and think about that I don't think family members necessarily would. What led you to this work? Oh, gosh, it's a long story. <laughs> um, I'm a CPA by background, and I did that work for about 20 years. An accountant. Had... You're an accountant. An sharing. accountant, okay. yes. <laughs> um, I had a best friend who was killed when I was in my 20s, and that sent me on a journey about death and dying. And um, I live right outside of New York City on, on September 11th, my um, 2001. My community was greatly impacted um, by those twin towers coming down. And it was a wake up call for me to say, what am I doing with my life? Um, life can change in one moment. And I hated my job. And so um, I was reading a book about hospice. And I said to my husband, I am quitting my job and I'm going to volunteer at a hospice. And that started me down this path of learning about an end of life doula and eventually co-founding a company to teach others across the country how to do this work. What finally would you say is one of the biggest, maybe most harmful misconceptions that Americans have about death? So many. So I think Americans are so far removed from death and dying in our society because we don't see it. You know, people are in hospitals, people are in nursing homes, they're not comfortable without it. And so they won't talk about it, you know, keep fighting, keep the battle going. And so many people have said to me, I'm tired, Mm -hmm. I'm dying. And they just keep telling me to try. So talking about death opens up so many opportunities that can be missed without talking about it. Janie Racco is co-founder of the International End of Life Doula Association. Thank you for sharing your story and talking a bit about your work today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. And that's it for today's episode of Carefully Curated Conversations from the Archive. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.